Lee's story is defined by three phone calls. Three calls that changed the trajectory of his life. This is the first one, which picks up right after where we left from our first episode. My little cousin accepted the call, and then she's like, hello? I'm like, uh, yo, where's oil? You know, she's like, she's here. I'm like, pass the phone to her. So my aunt got the five, like, because my cousin had already said on the phone, like, yeah, we, I'll accept the charges. So I'm calling from a collect call from somewhere, you know. She's trying to, like, say, hey, where are you calling from, you know? But really, like, she knows. He's calling his aunt, the woman who raised him when he first came to Canada, and it's like a mother to him. He hasn't lived with his family in a while, and they have no idea that he was involved in any illegal activities. And I couldn't really get the words out. Like, I immediately started choking up. Like, as soon as I heard her voice, I was choking up. And then she's like, you know, and then she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I'm in jail. She's like, what happened? And I'm like, it's a long story. I'm like, it's $5,000 bail, cash bail, and I can't get to my cash. I'm like, I have the cash. I'm like, I can pay you back. She's just like, enough. She's like, is there a number? And I can get rid of my lawyer's contact. Remember from the last episode, the reason Lee is calling is because if he misses bail, if he doesn't have an address to post that bail to, he could be in the correctional center for almost another year. And so I told her I'm in lockdown. We had that moment. And she's like, don't worry. She's like, we'll fix it. She's like, go well, sleep, you know, sleep well with your heart content tonight. She said that in Somali, like this. And I'm like, you know, she's like, and I'm like, okay. That means stop the worrying. You know, and I was like, okay. I almost brought me to tears now. She's like, I remember that line. She's like, sleep with your heart content, you know? We got you. And so within like the 24-hour period, they checked the address, they called. I got the bail, and I was out within 24 hours. All this nine months of running around trying to make things happen for myself and people failing me, like, you know, nothing working out. And it's like one 30-second phone call with my family, and, and I was a free man. And that was another like pivotal moment in my life to like giving up all that bullshit was there wasn't a time where my family wasn't there for me, you know? And I was like, why am I not there in the, in the fullest capacity I can be, you know? Why am I chasing this street dream of, of you know, risking it all for that big payout kind of thing? Hey, it's Hussein again, Sam. Welcome to 25 Northeast, a show made by Islamic family in Edmonton, Alberta, where we turn 25 degrees northeast to face the Qibla in Mecca. This is a show about Muslim life in Canada, where every season we pick a theme and use it to explore this experience. So this is episode two of our debut season, focusing on Canadian Muslim encounters with the prison system. And we're continuing the story of Liban, his time in prison, and how that's impacted his life. We just heard from him about how he finally got bail after calling his aunt. But he wasn't out of the woods just yet. He still had a trial coming up. And, more pressing than that, returning to Ottawa to face his family. By the way, there might be some strong language that's been beeped out, just in case you're listening in public or with someone. If you hear terms in other languages you don't understand, you can check out the transcription on our website, linked in the show notes. Let's get back to Lee. In that moment, I knew, like, my family was, was galvanizing them to the, themselves and they were, they'd be there, you know? 
but I didn't know how quick it'd be. That was actually very much of a shock because I thought the system, you know, usually the, the wheels of justice turned very slowly. While the prison staff processed Lee Ban, did the paperwork, and gave him his belongings, his brother-in-law flew in from Ottawa to pick him up and be there for him. My sister's like 12 years older than me, so she's more like an auntie. So he was the big brother, you know, like the figure. So when he came, it was like he had that moment with me, you know, he's like, everything's going to be all right, you'll be all right. He's like, what happened? And I was just like, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I couldn't still couldn't bring myself to give the details of what had happened, you know. And then he told me that we have a flight tomorrow. So we went back to this hotel that he had booked and we, he bought food. We, we talked a little and he went to sleep. I just stayed up. Like I watched TV. I went outside. I went for a walk around the whole area. Atchimon is not a very pretty place. It's not, it's not really nice on the eyes, you know? So when you come out, it's not, it's not the prettiest sight, but it's, it's still the best feeling you'll feel ever. Literally like being in jail and being released. Like, like that analogy that people use is like oh my god it's like the doors opened and i was like free it is that it's exactly that it's like you know imagine yourself being confined to a space for x amount of time and then all of a sudden the door is open very surreal you know and it was like that moment where i was like i never want to come back here like i looked at that place and i was like i never want to come back you know and the next morning you know we were, we hit the flight and i was back in ottawa When Lee landed in Ottawa, his brother-in-law dropped him off to his family's place. My mother and my sister, they actually live like walking distance from each other, like like 40 steps. My sister was the first person I saw. Right before you saw your sister, like what were you feeling like? Excitement? No, man, I felt dread. I felt dread because it's like, you know, you're coming, you're not coming back home from a, a victory battle or something. You're coming back home from jail. And as much as people try to victimize themselves and say, oh man, I had this kind of upbringing, blah, 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 blah. I, I was raised right. You know, I was raised with knowing the difference between wrong, right and wrong. And so with this dread building up in his chest, Liban started to walk towards his sister's place. The places you walk in through the backyard. So like they're both on the in it, like main floor of their buildings. And so, yeah, my sister's place, you know, just like any other day, like I walked through the backyard and I walked in and she was sitting there. There's the couch is right there as you walk in. And she was sitting there with the kitab in her hand and she just, you know, she looked up, she saw me. And I felt like a, just, you know, shame, like right here, it was plastered on my forehead, big capital letters, you know. And we gave each other a hug and she gave me a kiss and she told me, you know, like, let me make you some food and stuff. I'm like, no, I'm going to go see mom. It was just like, you know, I'm here. I'm good. Like, I'm physically all right. Like, she touched me, you know, she's like, you're all right. I'm like, yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. And then she's like, okay, I'll come see you later. Lee kept his reunion short because he knew he needed to see his mom. In terms of how he was feeling leading up to this, he put it succinctly. Dread times two. Oh, it, it, it increased. Of course it increased. It's my mom, you know, it's like, it's the place of origin. One person in this world that loves you unconditionally. So you really, as a son, you go out of your way to protect that, that love, you know, and you don't want it to ever be tainted with an image. 
And that's what I felt. You know, I felt like I had tainted the way my mother looks at me, will look at me. Yeah, that little 20 second walk over to her side of the, the, the neighborhood was, was dread times too. And so he walks into the main floor of the building. My mom's always sitting on the sully. On the what? The sully, the, the prayer mat. She's always sitting on the sully. It's like she's always in prayer. Like nine times out of 10, that's where she is. And what, what, when she first saw you, like what happened? She, she does this little, you know, the Somali like celebration thing with their tongue, the ladies do. <laughs> she did that and she like, she was clapping, you know, hugged her. And like immediately, like I, I felt like sorrow, you know? The emotion was visible on his face. He couldn't hide it, which his mom picked up on. And then she's like, don't worry, like, chill, chill. With my aunts and my moms, like, I, like, I, I can't hold my emotions back. It's like this running joke, like, I can't keep my emotions together when, when I'm around them. You know, they, they, they spent a lot of time worrying about me. And suddenly, just like that, in that room alone with his mom, all that fear, all that anxiety that was building up, was released. Did, after you saw that dread start to go down? Then? Oh, for sure. Immediately. Immediately. And then by the time, like, other relatives, like my aunts and stuff, started coming to visit, the dread was gone. It was more like they were, you know, just visiting, like I came back from Alberta or something. At that time, the kids were young, like, in the family. So it was like, hush, hush, you know? They didn't really tell them what the situation was. It was just like, Liban's back. During this reunion period, Liban never fully divulged his experiences in Saskatchewan to his family. Even asking them for help like this was difficult for him. Like now that I'm released and I'm free, I'm still like, why did I do that? You know, like I'm kind of beating myself up. Like why did I let them come get me? And, you know, it's still probably one of my biggest regrets that, that I tapped out. What do you mean that you tapped out? I allowed them to come and help me and I, and I, and I opened this window of clarity for them where they got to see me as a whole person, you know? Because this side of me was very much something I, I kept away from them. Because I was raised very religiously. It's like, you don't sell drugs and you don't, you know, get arrested. That's not like how I was raised, you know? I was always the kid that was like too smart for his own good, too clever for his own good. And that was like the rep I had in the family. Like, if you don't keep an eye on this kid, he'll, he'll get himself into some trouble. Like, he's bright, but he's also a handful. So it was the proving them right part. This moment was like, I've just proven you guys right. Like, that you guys were right to worry about me. I probably wouldn't have learned my lesson if I had been there longer, you know? I would have had that chip on my shoulder. Like, I survived this on my own and, you know, I earned my, my stripes kind of thing. There's a certain humility that was involved in, in them coming and getting me. And that I think that humility played a role in my eventual, like, you know, changing my course of direction for my life. The warm reunion didn't last long because Lee had to fly back to Saskatchewan for his trial. Shoot, man, it was actually like, like one of those, like, on sitting on the edge of your seats kind of situation. So we had gone back for a trial and then trial was two days. And then, you know, I'm sitting there with my suit, anticipating whether or not I'm going to be going to jail, you know. And there was another person that was charged and they said, you know, everything is my stuff. Like, it's not his. And they took it and they, the, the pr- prosecutor accepted their plea 
and they went to jail. To clarify, stuff here means illegal substances. These weren't Lee's materials. Someone else confessed to owning them. And then they're like, okay, with Mr. Hassan, we're still going to proceed because we believe he's the mastermind. You know, we don't believe that Mr. XYZ is the person who was running the show. We think he's the guy who's running the show. And then so the trial went for two days and then the judge took it in and he's like, all right, you know, leave and I'll make my judgment in two months. So the judge goes on vacation. And then when he goes on vacation, he comes back and dies. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, dog. It's crazy. So he died, and then the charge, uh, the case goes to another judge, and that judge has to read the chant. Like rather than having the thing go back and forth, like or redo it, they just had the judge read the transcript of the freaking of the trial and make a judgment based off of that. And so just like that, for about a year and a half, Lee had to wait until a new judge came in and made their decision. So he flew back to Ottawa and stayed with his family, having to figure out what to do with his new time. I spent a lot of time with family. I used to do, like, because they had all these conditions on me, I had no real way of making income. So I had this little hustle where I would, like, leave on a Saturday night, go to this poetry slam place and, like, compete, you know, and, like, I'd kill it all the time and like I'd get the, the, the stipend which was like 500 bucks. The first place he performed in one of these competitions was called Capital Slam Poetry. What were you writing about at that time? I had shared a poem that I wrote in Africa. I had gone to Africa when I was 19. You know, I was really getting into the street stuff and like, you know, I was kind of moving fast and loose and my family just, you know, they were like, yo, why don't you take a little bit of time, go visit Somalia. That was your first time? First time going back home. Your large carrier items need to go in the overhead compartment. Your smaller ones underneath the seat in front of you. One of the things that stood out to Lee about Somalia during these visits was the night sky, which would inspire him to write in the evenings. There's nothing like the African sky. Like... There's no pollution. There's no sky rises. It's just nothing but stars, all the stars. You can see each and every one of them as clear as day, you know? And, like, it's, it's, it's just something that's remarkable, you know? And so I used to tap into that nightly, and I'd write all the time. And were those the poems that you performed at the Poetry Slam? That, there was one that really stood out that I, I had performed at the Poetry Slam, yeah. That was the first one I, I shared. It's the first time I ever stepped on a stage was after I had come back. And so, Lee steps onto the stage for the first time in his life, and he walks up to the mic. My mama used to tell me, son, watch your step. My papa used to tell me, son, don't you slip. Here I am now with scraped up knees and one punctured lip. My two siblings see with two different breeds. I just had to play with fire, it's life. My favorite liar held on to it. Never saw past tomorrow, well, honestly... Never was too harsh a word. My clever thoughts passed this quarrel. What I had with my past, it didn't fit my persona. I was this and that with a dash of badass. My hot temper couldn't get past the sauna. Here I am now trying to make amends, babbling about shit. I'm just trying to make some sense in the court of life. I didn't know better is my best defense. So mama, 
I tied my laces and now count my paces. You were so lenient and I, I was so devious. Forgive me, mama, please, for my disobedience. I know I was never dumb. As a matter of fact, I was always the clever one, forced to choose between two evils and I never went for the lesser one. Learn from your faults, that's lesson one. Lesson two was a blessing too and now I wish I had listened too. I'm missing truth, that's the gripping truth. I was a blind man walking, couldn't see the slippery slopes I was slipping through and the grief I was giving you, the stress and distress Papa was living too. But the blind man has been given sight, so hang on tight, mama, for the light that I'm bringing you. <laughs> and then like the whole place kind of like exploded and I was like oh snap and you wrote that in like one night in Somalia one night in Somalia yeah you wrote this when you were 19 I wrote it when I was 19 yeah The Gripping Truth is my first poem I actually like shared something that stood out to me listening to Lee perform that poem which by the way he did off the top of his head on the living room couch was that he was so self-aware at such a young age. Remember, this is a poem he's written before he went to prison. And so I asked him about the paradox of the self-awareness and his eventual run-in with the police. I've always been very self-aware. Like, you can be aware of train is headed your way. If you don't move out of the train, it doesn't matter whether or not you're aware, you know? And I hadn't developed my, my skill to move out of the way yet. Unfortunately, that train was heading towards him again when he had his second encounter with the police. Okay, so while Iban was waiting for the results of the trial, he was given certain conditions he had to maintain, mentioned earlier. Here's him explaining how they work. They give you conditions like you can't have a cell phone, you can't have money, cash, like like you can't have you can't be around people who have criminal records. You can't be around people who are being investigated, whatever, like a million condition. One, most of the people you know have criminal records. 95% of the people I had social access to had criminal records. My uncles had criminal records, you know? And you can't have money. What the f- does that mean? And it's like, even if you have a record, like in the bank, you have a bank card, right? Like, okay, not everything is accessible through bank cards, right? It's like, especially at the bottom level like of, of life, it's like you have access, more easily access to, to cash. You should always have access. That should never be a condition like to, to anybody. It's like cutting them off at the knees, you know, telling them to walk. And you can have a cell phone. And my my charge had nothing to do with cell phones and money and, you know. It's even crazier because like if they tell you not to have a phone, it's literally like cutting you off, off out the grid, you know. And that's, that's another tough belt to swallow. One of the conditions dictated how late he could be out until. I had a curfew. I had a 10 p.m. curfew, so I had to be in my home by 10 p.m. But it wasn't like I had a like house arrest, you know? One of those nights close to curfew, Lee was out with some of his family. Yeah, it was the all-star basketball game. We were literally watching the basketball game at a, at a sports bar. And I was with my nephew, my, my cousin, and some friends because we, like, we were just literally watching it. And then, like, I remember it was like a shot went in or something. And uh, I just get this tap on my shoulder, you know, like all of a sudden it's just these cops, like they're just doing ID checks. And like it's their gang suppression, I guess, you know, and they go to like bar to bar to bar in the downtown areas and just ID people. You know, see who's supposed to be where and who's not supposed to be there. And I'm like, yo, I'm like, I'm not giving you ID. I'm like, this is illegal. 
like you're not leaving like the like until we figure out who you are and i'm like oh my god like we hassled back and forth for a while and finally i'm just like yo f- it. like i'll give him my id and they gave me like 14 breaches a breach is when you violate one of the conditions that he talked about before so i had money i wasn't supposed to have money i had money in my pocket i was supposed to have a cell phone i was supposed to be out past 10 i was supposed to be with people who have a criminal record you know all these things just they just compounded it but when I went to court, they dropped all of them except for two, and I did the time for the two. These random police ID checks are called carding. And carding is a controversial practice because academics and civil rights groups have argued that people of color, particularly black Canadians, are disproportionately stopped and carded by the police. Back in 2010, the Toronto Star did an investigation on carding. The paper obtained internal police data showing this racial disparity. And then in 2017, random carding was banned in Ontario. But Lee's encounter was before this policy came into effect. Because of that, for the second time, he had to go to jail again. I did 14 days, seven days per breach. I was pissed. Having to go to jail, I was, oh man, I was like, I thought I was done with this, you know? But that's the system, man. It's like, you think you're I'm clear, but... It's just one moment, you know, once they know you or once they have a means to get a hold of you, they will use it and they will use it as often as they can. So for the second time in his life, Lee is back in prison. But luckily, this was only for two weeks. And within this facility, the people were more diverse and included a Muslim population. This time it was it was cool because it was like, all right, one, like I got to do Friday prayer. I got to be around like more Somali people, more people like of color, like, you know, nighttime we watch movies and laugh. And it was like, it was cool. But there was this one gentleman who's like a 67 year old Indian guy who's Muslim, but he like he spent his life like, you know, like chasing money. And he's like, he was in there for bribing a judge or something. He had just gotten in. I don't know how he got to like talking, but he didn't know Quran. And he was like, I'm getting old. And he's like, I'd like to learn Quran, you know? So I spent the next 14 days teaching him Jusama. You would recite and then he would copy. No, I'd write it down for him and I'd show him the pronunciation. So I'd write it down in Arabic and then I'd write it the way you pronounce it in yeah. like, I guess like English or like alphabetical yeah. alphabets. And then he'd memorize it and then I'd take the paper from him and then like he'd and then he'd recite it, you know, like Duxi. Like like, you know, like Quran yeah. school. You were doing jail Duxi. <laughs> yeah, I was doing jail Duxi, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was, you know. I call my sister on the phone, I'm like, yo, is this ayah, you know, like this? And she goes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I write it down and I I'd show him like this is how you pronounce it. And so and then he'd recite it and he'd be like, Okay, cool. Like, yo, for a sixty seven year old though, this dude could be like like that he'll memorize something you know and i'm like wow like, but i guess it's like when you have your intentions set on something it it must be a, a lot easier you know he was he was sad to see me go after that, that 14 days and i was sad to leave and i was like let's keep in touch i took his number and stuff I, you know life and you know, like i lost that piece of paper and I hope he's doing well, man. I hope, I hope he's all right. His sister, who was helping him do this jail, Duxie, 
loved the fact he was helping out this older gentleman. And she was so happy. She's like, you go places and like, and she's like, you spread like positivity, you know? She's like, you shouldn't be there. Like, and every time I was like, even like in Saskatchewan, like the guards would be like, you shouldn't be here, you know? Like that, I heard that a lot in my, in my experience through the system. So between the jail duxi and hanging out with other incarcerated Muslims, these two weeks fly by for Liban. It was the last time I stepped foot in the jail. The months go by until one day the trial results come in. It's like the day of the decision, right? It's like you're anticipating this. It's like, oh, you're going to get a call that's going to say, hey, you got found guilty and you have to travel back and turn yourself in. Or you're going to get a call that says, hey, man, you, you, you beat it. Or, or there was, it could have been a mistrial or whatever and have to do it again. It was just anticipation. You just want it over with, right? It's like, I'll, even if they found me guilty, I would have did my time. I was going to go do some provincial time and like I was going to go do my push-ups and, you know, like I literally had like, if it's going to go this way, I have a mindset. And if it was going to go this way, I have a mindset, you know, but it was both were better than this because one, you have like a date. You're like, this is like an end date, right? You're like, my nightmare will be over on this day. And then on this one is like, my nightmare will be over on this day. But right now I don't have a date. So it's like, you're just moving and grooving with nothing to do. Lee was sitting on the couch when he got the call, the second call in the story, which would determine the trajectory of his life. I was staying at my mom's and my mom's was like this like one bedroom apartment. So I like lived in the living room. I'm pretty sure I was probably sitting on the, the couch, which is the bed. The phone rings. And Lee picks it up. My lawyer is this, you know, he's a very energetic dude. So like, you don't really have to put the phone to your, to your ear. As I was like, hello. And he's like. And just like that, Lee had won the trial. And I was just like, oh my God. I was like, oh, because that is such a, a crazy dynamic, right? Like read a transcript and dictate whether or not somebody is guilty, you know? You don't get to see me sitting there. You don't see the looks on my face. You don't get to see, you know, the prosecution. And yeah, he still made his judgment. So I guess that showed how much of a, a case the prosecution really had. Immediately, like you get this, like a swelling of like emotions, you know? Because you don't, you don't even know how much this is affecting you until it's not. A, a thing anymore like now it's done like i'm i no longer have to deal with this and then it's like your body is not tense anymore like all your body kept all that like raw energy that you were housing for all this time and then so it was like this almost like release you know and then yeah man as he was, st- was talking i think my mom must have been like in the kitchen or the bathroom I'm like hoyo you know and then i'm like she's like what i'm like i won you know and she's like Alhamdulillah, she did that thing, you know, and that was that. And I was like, yo, I'm never going to be in this situation again. Like, that was my personal promise to myself. But despite this promise to himself, this entire ordeal of flying back for the trial 
waiting for the trial results, having these conditions put on him, and then once again being put in a state of limbo, it all took a toll on Lee. Because you see people moving on with their lives, right? Like your people that you grew up with, like they're, they're having kids, they're, they're traveling, they're doing things, you know? Like they have jobs, they're going, like I, I, for two years I was stagnant, you know? I was on pause. And that two years on pause was like, all I did was like nothing. It was self-destructive, you know? It was idle time, you know? And that's the worst kind of time, especially for someone like me. And, and I just really was building, like having this sense of like animosity towards the system um, building inside of me. That two years being stagnant put like a thirst for getting money, for getting paid. Like I was just so slacking, you know, like I'm borrowing money. I'm asking for change from, you know, like friends and family, like whoever was around, like give me 20 bucks. You know? And it's like, I've never been the person who needed 20 bucks. It took a, a chip away from like, it chipped at you, you know? So do you think a negative impact on you? Yeah, for sure. And there's this feeling of like, oh, like firing you to go get it. Just like all those years before, a culmination of these feelings led Lee to make a bad decision and return to old habits. And so as soon as like I was found not guilty, I caught a ticket and went back right back to Alberta. And like, so I hadn't really learned a lesson. So Lee flies back to Alberta, but then something happens that disrupts his plans. It all started when he reconnected with a family friend he hadn't seen in a while. He was the cousin of my nephews, so like we were like kinfolk, you know? We didn't grow up together, but like we'd see each other at like birthday parties and stuff like that, so we knew of each other. He was older than Lee, someone who he admired. He'd always tell me, yo, you're different than us, you need to go to school, I'll pay for your school, and I like... I had this chip on my shoulder, like, I'm bad, just like you guys, you know? Like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove my point. I'm not, I don't need you to pay for my school. They only hung out once when Lee came back, but made plans together for Lee's birthday. I was just turning 25. He was a like, quarter century. Like, he was like, you could turn a quarter century. He's like, we're going to go do it big. We're supposed to go to, like, the Dominican Republic or something and, and, and have a, a trip for my birthday, which was, like, the, like, less than a month away. Time goes by. And one day Lee was hanging out with some friends when he got a call, the third call in our story, that would become a turning point. He heard that his friend, his family member, the one he just reconnected with, was murdered. He was actually killed in his in his home while he was watching TV. It was like some, so it was like somebody he knew. It was a double homicide and a friend of his was sleeping next to him and they killed both of them. I don't know much about the details. Nobody's been arrested for it. Like that same day, I heard he had gotten shot. And then that evening, I heard that he passed away from his wounds. And, you know, he was, he was 32 when he passed away. How'd you feel, like, in, right in that moment when you found out? Man, you know, because he's, he's, he's one of those people that, like, give you the shirt off his back, you know? So it always, it's always those people who are, find themselves in the hands of, like, somebody who has bad intentions for you, you know, because they're always so willing to give. And I do know that, like, in that moment, I realized, like, we're more, like, we're, we're mortal, you know, like, you could be here today and then you're gone tomorrow.
No one knows why these two young men were murdered. They weren't known to be involved in any legal activities. And to this day, their murder remains unsolved. Gun violence is very, very predominant in the Somali community, especially here in Alberta. There was a point where like, there was like 30 young men killed in the same year. Making permanent decisions based on temporary feelings is a theme in our community where people resort to using their pistols rather than using their, their, their words and, you know, like hatching things out. Unfortunately, more bad news followed after this. So in Calgary, just beforehand, I had gone to Somalia again. So while I was on conditions, I had left to Somalia and I had permission, like written permission from the courts that, that said I can go. And then while I was in Somalia, my, one of my close friends, she was in Calgary and she was actually killed by accident. She was outside the, the club and some guys started just like kind of shooting their gun in the air or shooting at each other. And she got a stray bullet, like one stray bullet, and she passed away. And then I remember I, I got that call in Somalia. I bawled my eyes out because like, we went to university together when we were like 18 or something. Like I did like a semester of university back in Ottawa. Yeah, so, you know, that's the, the degree I got was the degree she graduated with, you know. So that's why I went into PR was because of Tash. So those two deaths kind of were the, the beginning of the end for me. As we've seen throughout this journey, Lee was already incredibly self-aware and dealing with conflicting emotions and shame. It wasn't out of vindictiveness that drove him to make bad decisions so much as bad influences and negative emotions. But there's always been this inner conflict. These two deaths, one of a classmate, another of a family member, they took these conflicting emotions and broke the ice that kept them under the surface. You know, I always had this moral thing with, you know, like being in the game and being on the opposite side of things. Like you're raised a particular way and then you behave a certain way in society and those are clashing with each other. And so constantly I'd always be like having this battle, like, you know, this inner turmoil of feelings like, you know, and I didn't like it. I never really, I never really liked my position, my station in life until after I, you know, I started aligning with what I was doing and how I was feeling or how I was raised. I guess I'm trying to ask like, what reflection or lesson did, that you took away from those murders that you made like, that I can't do this because you already had the conflict yeah it's the time man it was like time is not guaranteed you're you're not promised a second out here you know and so you can be planning to do something as simple as going to a birthday party or you know planning a birthday for your friend and and not make it there you know during this reflective period of his life he was thinking a lot about his first friend and family member that was murdered. I'm older now than he was when he passed away. It's like he had coffee that morning, you know, thinking that he's going to make it to the evening. And he didn't. That was the last thing on his mind was that he was going to pass away. I was like, what am I doing with my, my time? The time that I do have. You know, I'm not spending it with my mom. I'm not spending it with my sister. I'm not spending it with people that really give a shit about me. You know, I'm spending it with a group of knuckleheads who on a drop of a dime will probably, you know, leave me behind. It's like you had to tell yourself the harsh truth. Like, you know, the people I was surrounding myself with really didn't have my best intentions at heart. And the people that I was kind of 
distancing myself from were the people that would, you know, lay it all down for me. And so I had to, I had to, you know, give people their due credit. And then so once I started doing that properly, like my life changed, like it was like almost overnight. I went and started working in the oil patch and I got married and I just kind of like completely turned to 180 and just went this way, you know? And I think everybody that knew me was like, they kind of like gasped for air, you know? Not gasped for air, they kind of released air. Like, you know, they were holding their breath. Like, you know, they were wishing I did something along those lines and it finally happened. As a part of his journey away from crime, Lee went back to school with a major in public relations in honor of his friend Tash and a minor in his lifelong love, creative writing. This time, though, things were a lot different from his first try at university. It was like, why didn't anybody tell me about this years ago? Like, this is literally my avenue. Like, what I'm supposed to be doing in life is like PR and like all writing and all this stuff is like, this is my niche, you know? Like, why the heck did I go to school for psychology when I was like 18? You know? Like, this time around, I really knew who I was and I knew what I was good at and what my skill sets were. Not only was he doing stuff he enjoyed, but he was good at it too. And so when I went into school, like I know I have a 4.0 GPA. I, I have scholarships. I have, you know, inter- I've like done like three, four internships. So, and then I chose creative writing as a, as a minor because I wanted to, you know, learn these aspects of storytelling that I, like, I wanted to sharpen. I'm going to go to film school next year and, and for script writing. And so, you know, the journey continues. It's like, we'll see where I am like in, in two years, in three years, you know. Yet despite his good grades and how intelligent he is, Lee still has a criminal record stemming from a charge he beat and the conditions on those charges, which again, he beat. Each of those conditions still counts as a separate criminal charge. The place where this has hurt him the most is employment opportunities. I haven't got a pardon yet, so I still have a criminal record. I go through interview processes on the regular, you know, where sometimes I'm even headhunted for positions. They come looking for me. And I mean, you know, when that background check has to come through, uh, I never hear from them again. Lee's been through a lot. And so I asked him directly what he makes of this journey that we've been listening to. I'm a writer, you know, I needed to live that. Had I not like lived that kind of life and lifestyle, I wouldn't have much to write about. That's literally like, I, I just look at it like I needed to experience it. You know, I'm one of those people that like, I have to touch the flame in order to know that it's hot. <laughs> so, uh, this, that's why my mom always says like, which means like, you know, Lidan has to go and touch the flames like to know it's hot. And so, yeah, it just, you know, it, it, it propelled me in ways that like I can write about the journeys I've been on and, and I can understand with clarity and empathy the journeys that others are on. I share a lot of my experiences through my blogs and through my pieces. And I just look at it like, you know, if I could save one kid some time and, you know, not make the same mistakes as me, I feel like I've, I've, I've done the job well done. You know, seeing young young people come like, yo, I want to be a writer, you know? It's like, you, you, yo, you're, you write so dope. Like, for me, it's like, man, it's like, I used to be the, the cautionary tale, you know? And now I'm like, and I, I started like becoming like the example, like, Parents are telling their kids, like, you know, like, be like Lee Van, you know? <laughs> and they used to be, don't be like Lee Van. 
And in reflecting about his journey and what it meant, he's also gained a deeper understanding of his faith too. I truly understand the mercy of Allah. Like I understand that he's not going to put you through anything you can't handle. You know, this whole thing is a test and that in the sense that, you know, one decision here can lead to an outcome over there. And so, you know, you have to, you have to move in, in a certain fashion and walk in faith. You know, I truly believe that. I believe wholeheartedly, you know, and so I walk in faith. Like I would truly, in every step that I know, whatever I am doing, if it turns out whack, it's alhamdulillah. If it turns out good, it's alhamdulillah. There's a benefit in everything, you know. Despite the impact his record has had on his life, this entire journey Lee's shared with us actually happened years ago, and he doesn't let it define him. These days, he's a father, a writer, and so many other things. He actually has a book in the works about this experience called Boy About Town. It's a series of prose reflections paired with poetry. He has this idea that you'll be able to scan QR codes in the book and hear him actually recite the poems he's written. I'll update the show notes with a link when it comes out. As our time together came to an end, I thought about the first time I met Lee. He showed me this short story he wrote, an origin story about his time in Somalia and then coming to Canada. And this short story begins with this early memory, maybe even a dream, he's not sure if it's real, where a monkey comes in and takes his breakfast when he's just a baby. I used it as a metaphor in in the story, as like a a symbolic indication of the zeitgeist of, of the times, you know, where it was like, our, we were constantly under threat of having our sustenance snatched. And, you know, in different stages of my life, I've had my freedom snatched. I've had, you know, my people I love snatched from me. It's like, there's this reoccurring thing of I'm, I'm being taken from often, you know, but we put a, we put an end to that a while ago. Yeah. I haven't had anything snatched from me in a while. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Good. This episode of 25 Northeast was produced by myself, Hussein, with the help and supervision of Toba Khalifa. Thank you to Ramathila Sheikh, who did our audio editing and sound design. And special thank you to Adar Abdul Qadir, who helped me think about some things about the podcast when I was first coming up with the idea. Anyways, join us next time for the story of someone who works in prison from the other side of the bars with inmates people seldom want to help. If you like this episode and you want to listen to more, then follow and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you really like this episode and think creating art by and for the Muslim community is important, then please share it with a friend. It really helps out new shows like ours find listeners. Finally, if you've ever been in the same shoes as Lee Ban or resonate with his journey, here's some bonus advice from him. Don't be too hard on yourself. Allow yourself the space you need to grow, the space you need to change. And, you know, walk in faith. Like Allah will, will protect you if like if it's written for you to stay on this planet and you just remember you're not the worst thing you've ever done you're not the sum of the best thing you've ever done you know and carry yourself as such like you're complex you're you know give yourself that be forgiving with yourself you know if you or someone you know is looking for support in the Edmonton area with food insecurity mental health issues and other things you can reach out to Islamic Family at our website islamicfamily.ca Thank you.